0: Thank you, Aaron, for sharing that with us. Our core value for today is God-dependent prayer, and you heard some of that theme in her testimony. You also heard in that theme that often when we pray, we don't get the answers that we expect. God doesn't always answer the way we try to tell Him He ought to answer. And as we think about prayer, and as we think about this core value of God-dependent prayer, every one of us who are followers of Jesus have to admit that we're learners. I don't stand before you this morning as an expert on prayer. Every one of us are continuing to learn, and I think we will continue to learn until the day Jesus takes us home And then, I assume, in heaven we'll still be learning about how we communicate with Him face to face and the difference that that makes. And as we think about this core value and what God-dependent prayer means, who better to learn from than Jesus, our Lord? And so I invite you to turn to a familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Jesus teaches in this passage, the context is, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, he teaches what is one of his longest lessons on prayer. In fact, he will say three times in the opening verses, when you pray, he assumes that we're praying. And then later he will say twice, pray, it's a command to do it. And Jesus' teaching here doesn't teach us everything about prayer. There's not really much mention or discussion of a key component, which is thanksgiving. The Psalms teach us that. We've just come out of that season of thanksgiving. There's not a lot of emphasis here on confession, though there's a little bit. And there's not much emphasis on praying for others, though we will see him say our father we'll talk about the fact that there is a corporate nature to some of the prayer but jesus does teach us in this section two very essential conclusions that help us learn about god god dependent prayer the first thing that we notice is that god dependent prayer is not grounded in who we are but who god is Jesus is warning us in these early verses not to make prayer all about ourselves, not to make it self focused, but instead to make it God focused. Because when we make it self focused, self focused prayer revolves around us. It's all about us. And so Jesus opens in verses 5 and 6 with a warning And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Jesus warns us that too often prayer can be more about showing other people how spiritual we think we are than about talking to our Father. There's an ostentatious nature sometimes to public prayer. And so he talks about the hypocrites, and if you trace that through the Sermon on the Mount, he's probably thinking of the Pharisees, who love to lead the prayers in the synagogue where everybody can see them and be impressed. They also love to pray in public at the hours of prayer. Judaism had certain set hours where you could or should pray. And what Jesus implies is that these hypocrites would design it so that they got caught out in public at the hour of prayer, and they'd be at the broadest part of the street, the street corner, and they would stand there and maybe they'd pray something like this. Oh God, thank you that I can stand here in public and pray that I'm not like these other people who aren't pausing to pray like I am. They love to draw attention to themselves and Jesus says they have their reward. They want men's attention, they get it. But they don't get God's answers to their prayers. The contrast, Jesus says, is to pray in private. Now, he's not condemning public prayer. Jesus prayed publicly. What he's condemning is showy prayer. Prayer that's just designed to draw attention to ourselves. Instead, he says, go into your room, and the word that's used there is like a storage room or a treasure room, a secluded room. Shut the door, keep everybody out, and just talk to your Father. You know, it's always a danger of public prayer, isn't it? That we forget that we're talking to God and we think about the people that are out there listening. In years past, Portage City Council used to uh, open in prayer. They no longer do, but they used to invite us in to pray. And, And that was something that I would always have to wrestle with and remind myself of, that I was not praying for that city council in front of me, that I was not praying to the TV camera, but I was praying to God for that city council. Public prayer can be a tricky thing. And so Jesus warns us, that we need to make sure we're not self-focused whether we're praying in public or in private. And so he gives a second warning that applies even to private prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Sometimes prayer is simply mouthing words. Literally, the word empty is the word for babbling. And the idea is that the Gentiles, the pagans, would try to manipulate their gods by just pouring words on them and overwhelming them by the sheer volume of their words. Now, again, Jesus is not saying don't pray for long periods. He did, he prayed all night at times. And he's not saying don't continue to pray about the same kinds of things to God because he tells a parable later that says we need to continue to ask God for what we really need. What Jesus is saying is that we need to not have prayers where our mouth is engaged and our mind isn't. Where we just simply give something out in rote. Have you been there? I think we've all been there, if we're honest, where we've started to pray and realized we don't even think, don't know what we're saying. We're just saying words that we commonly say as we pray. The irony here is that Jesus is about to give a model prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. It's really the prayer for His disciples, His followers. He's about to give this model prayer, and this model prayer has been used exactly like what He says we shouldn't do. For people just to rotely say it without their minds even engaged. And before we get too critical of churches that every Sunday recite the Lord's Prayer, how often do we fall into cliches? Or how often do we fall into words that we commonly just use in prayer? Or how often does our tone change? We're just talking like this and then we get ready to pray and it's, Oh God, thank you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Don't do. Don't make it about you. Don't make it self-focused. Instead, God-dependent prayer looks to our loving Father. He's going to say twice in verse 6, Your Father. And he's going to say that again in verse 8. But when you pray, in contrast with the hypocrites, Go into your inner room, your treasure chamber, and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. He's there with you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He will answer. He will give you what you need when you pray God-dependent, talking to the Father and not to the people and not exalting self. And then in contrast with the pagans, he says in verse 8, don't be like them, babbling, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And the verb tense here indicates that God knew before we started praying. He knows when we're praying. And when we stop praying, He will continue to know what we need. And so we, we might be tempted to say, well, then why bother praying? I mean, if God knows before I prayed, why do I pray? Because he tells us to. Because he wants us to. He desires that communication between us and him. Because we need to. Because what happens in prayer is not that we drag God unwillingly to an answer, but that God works and shapes us. In fact, Martin Luther says, by praying, we are instructing ourselves. And so we come to our Father." And that's what Jesus says at the beginning of his model prayer. Pray then like this, verse 9, Our Father in heaven. We simply lay our needs before our Father. And most of you have been around church long enough to know that the word used here for Father is Abba. It's Daddy. It's an intimate term of connectedness that no Jew before Jesus would ever have prayed. In fact, they would not even use the word Yahweh or Jehovah. They would substitute Adonai, Lord, for his name. They were never going to say, Daddy. You can look in vain through the Old Testament to find an Old Testament saint praying that way. They didn't. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and as the very Son of God, God in the flesh, he prays, Father, Daddy, And then he teaches us that because we, through faith in Jesus and what he did when he died for our sins, are adopted into God's family, we can say that as well. We can say, Abba, Daddy, we have an intimate and personal relationship with him. No one loves us more than he does. And no one is more able to do what is needed than he is. He is our Father In heaven. He rules over all. He is sovereign over all. We can come to him confidently in prayer. But there's also a warning in that in heaven, isn't there? Because while he's our father, he's not our buddy. We still need to come reverently to our father, intimate relationship, but the one who is sovereign over all. The first essential conclusion that Jesus teaches us about God-dependent prayer is that it's not grounded in who we are. Now, we are His children, so there's an element there. But ultimately, it is grounded in who God is, our Father in heaven, who invites us, who commands us to come to Him. With all our warts, with all our failures, with all our struggles, With all our doubts, we come and we lay our lives before Him. When our children were at home, I don't ever remember an occasion where any one of them ever got all cleaned up and wrote out a flowery speech to come and talk to me about what they wanted me to give them or do for them. It's not what children do, right? They just come and say, Dad, would you please do this? Would you please give me this? And Jesus says, if our earthly fathers respond to earthly children, how much more will our loving Father respond to us? And so we're reminded in this first conclusion that what God, our loving Father, wants is for us as God's child, wholly dependent on Him, simply lay our requests before him even as we're struggling as we heard Aaron talk about her struggles. The second conclusion that Jesus teaches us in this section is that God-dependent prayer is not focused on what we want but on God's priorities. Very often our prayers Consist of a laundry list of things we would like God to do for us. Jesus teaches us to focus in on what God's priorities are for our prayer life. Now, He's not going to teach us all of them, but He's going to teach us two. And the first priority that He teaches us is that God wants people to bow to Him as their Lord. And he teaches us, he models for us three requests. All three of those requests are interrelated. They all can be boiled down to what God desires is for people to bow before him, to accept him as Lord and Savior. The first request, sometimes confused as part of the opening, and it's not, is hallowed be your name. We don't use the word hallowed very often. It it really simply means to be set apart as holy, to be recognized as distinct and of high value. And God's request that he wants us to pray is that all people will hallow, will set apart as holy, will recognize as above all his name. And a name in that culture was not just Bill. A name stood for all that you were, your character, your person, everything that was part of you. And so what we are to pray is that all people will recognize as holy and set apart and above all the very person and character and nature of God. This is a request that people will bow before God as their sovereign and their Savior. And that's what we need to be praying, that people will come to faith, come to recognize who God is. But there's a challenge in this first request, because can you and I pray, oh God, I pray that your name will be set apart as holy if we who bear his name are not living lives that are set apart as holy. And we pray, may people recognize you as being above all and holy if what we post on Facebook and what we watch and what we listen to and how we do our schoolwork and how we do our job at work, if that doesn't reflect the real holy character of our God. So as we pray, may your name be set apart. It's a challenge to you and to me to live lives that are set apart so that people see the difference in us as the very children of God. He goes on with the second and third request, all in one verse, which link back to the first request. Your kingdom come, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's really the same request that people will bow to God as their Lord, as their sovereign, as their Savior we're to pray for His righteous, saving reign to be established in individual lives now that people would come to faith in Jesus. And then ultimately that it would come, that Jesus would come to reign on this earth forever. Our hope. You understand what a radical prayer that can be? is. It is a prayer that God would end all human kingdoms and that He would reign as supreme. Like the vision in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar's image is there and then the rock comes and smashes the image because the rock is the kingdom of God. What a radical request that God would end the rule of our Congress and our President and our Supreme Court and that He would rule supreme in this land, in this world. And it'll happen someday because Jesus is coming back to reign. Understand what a radical request that was in the days Jesus taught it. That was in a direct affront to the empire of Rome. That Jesus would be Lord, that God would rule, and that God's will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We are to pray for God's will to be done without delay without rebellion, without opposition, because that's how his will is obeyed in heaven, just immediately. But again, there's a challenge. Can we pray that if we're not doing that? God, may your will be done, but by the way, I'm going to do my own thing, okay? God, may your kingdom come, but I'm going to live for my values and for my plans and for my kingdom, no. We can't pray that unless it's true in our own lives. We're doing His will. His will permeates every area of our life. So it's a missionary prayer. May people bow the knee now. May they recognize you as their king. And so as we pray that, we're praying for people we know that don't know Jesus. We're praying that His kingdom would advance in the lives of people that they would grow spiritually. It's also an eschatological prayer. Jesus, we are looking forward to your return. God, would you send Jesus back to rule and reign soon? There's a legend told of a bishop that was standing one day in a great cathedral. And as he was standing there, a, a priest came rushing up to him, all worried and bothered, and said, your eminence, your eminence. Yeah, what is it? He said, someone says they just saw Jesus in the outer courtyard. What should we do? The bishop thought a moment, and he said, look busy. Look busy. Because if Jesus were here, we'd want to be about his work. Well, I want to suggest to you, don't just look busy, be busy. Be busy, not only saying, may your kingdom come and your will be done, but supporting the work of his kingdom that is existent in hearts right now. Jesus teaches us to pray that God will impact the lives of people so that they bow their knee to him in salvation. And then he gives us a second priority of God. And this one may surprise you, except that you know the prayer. God wants our real needs to be met. Think about that. The God of the universe cares about what you and I need. And he is our loving father, after all. And so he teaches us three requests Just like there were three requests about God's glory and his sovereignty and bowing the knee, there are three requests about our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, there are some commentators even today, and especially among some of the early church fathers who tried to spiritualize this and tried to say, well, what we're praying about here is the communion bread. (laughs) That's not it. We're praying about our daily needs. God cares about those daily needs. And bread in that culture was a staple of the diet. And so in essence, this stands for what you and I need to live to survive life. Not just food, but shelter and health and other things we can bring to God. The word daily is a rare word, or the word this day as it's translated and, and it's a word that occurs only here in the New Testament and only maybe one other time. We're not certain in all of Greek literature. But the idea is, give us what we need for this moment. Because in that culture, you'll remember, most workers were paid at the end of the day for their day's work. And they would either buy the food they needed for that night or they would buy the food their family needed to survive the next day. And that's the picture here. Give us what we need to survive right now. Most of us don't live that way anymore. Thank the Lord for that. We don't live hand to mouth. Most of us have refrigerators and pantries and freezers and bank accounts. But you know what? We are still just as dependent. Because all of that could be gone just like that. Ask the people of Ukraine. Ask people who have gone through floods or earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes how quickly what we think we have can disappear and so jesus is teaching us to express our daily dependence on god for everything story is told of a young mother who after world war ii went into the corner grocery store and approached the grocer there and said to him my husband was killed in the war and i need food to fix my children christmas dinner and the man was sort of hardened businessman and he thought for a minute and he said well how much can you pay and she said all i have to offer is a simple prayer and he said well write it down she said i already wrote it down last night as i was watching over my sick child and she handed him a folded piece of paper well now the grocer's stuck what's he going to do you know Without looking at the piece of paper, he thought for a minute and he said, I tell you what, let's put your prayer on my scales and see what your prayer weighs. And so he put the piece of paper on the scale and then he took a loaf of bread and he set it on the other side and the scale didn't move. He's kind of puzzled by that, but he took some produce and set it on there, the scale didn't move. He took some meat and set it on there, the scale didn't move. He said, a little more food on there. The scale didn't move. And finally he said, well, that's all my scale will hold. And so he began to bag up the groceries he'd put on the scale. And seeing there was a little more room, he threw a a round of cheese in there. And he gave it to the mother who tearfully thanked him. After she left, he took the piece of paper and he unfolded it. And on it, it simply said, give us this day our daily bread. Now, it wasn't a miracle because he then looked and discovered his scale was broken. That might have been the miracle. But the point is, God cares. Our daily needs are important to him. We can take those and lay them before him because he is our loving father. And notice again, it is give us our daily bread. There's a corporate nature to this. There's a recognition that we don't live to ourselves. And so we pray not only for ourselves, but others within our sphere of influence that God would provide their daily needs. Not wants, but needs. There is a second request. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word debt means an obligation, something that we owe God or that others owe us. In the parallel passage where Jesus teaches this this, uh, prayer in Luke, he uses the word transgressions, which is sometimes you hear the Lord's Prayer recited, our trespasses. And actually in verses 14 and 15, as we'll see in a minute, he uses that word. So the debts are not financial debts here. They're talking about debts, obligations that we owe to God because of our sins against Him. This is, in its essence, a request that focuses our attention on the gospel. Because it's saying, I owe God a debt of sin that I can never pay My only hope is what Jesus did when he died on the cross to forgive our sins. I am a debtor, but Father God, forgive my debt because of what Jesus did. Now, the cross is still future when Jesus teaches that. So we're reading back into that, but that's the only basis for forgiveness. Forgive our debts. They're unpayable. They're too big. We cannot pay them. We need your grace. But notice the challenge in the verse. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who've sinned against us. And now we get into an area where it gets a little tougher. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that that our salvation rests upon, is earned by, our forgiving others? No, that would contradict the rest of Scripture. What he is saying is that as his children who have experienced salvation, who are in relationship with him, our relationship with him can be harmed when we fail to forgive. In fact, this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that he elaborates on. Isn't that interesting? That's how important forgiveness is. Verses 14 and 15 if you do not, if you forgive others their trespasses, Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Please understand, he is not saying that we lose our salvation. That again would contradict the rest of Scripture. But he's saying our relationship with the Father is impacted if we fail to release anger and grudges and resentment against other people. Forgiveness is hard, forgiveness is complicated. Forgiveness is a two-way street, ultimately. Reconciliation takes the repentance of the other person. But even if they will not seek to reconcile, we can release our anger, we can let go of our grudge, we can release our bitterness, we can forgive at that level, and we need to. Because we've been forgiven. And Jesus tells a whole parable about that in Matthew 18. What he is saying, essentially, is that forgiven people forgive. And if we refuse to forgive, we are demonstrating that we don't understand forgiveness or maybe we need to examine our hearts and see if we've ever experienced God's genuine forgiveness of our sins. Someone, one commentator I read said, forgiveness is a necessary evidence of transformation that God has changed and is changing us. I didn't write down the source of this letter when I clipped it and put it in my file, but I think it's from a magazine that I subscribed to. A mother wrote in and talked about her six-year-old son, Ben, who had an adversary at school, another young boy that just made his life pretty miserable. And so Ben decided he was going to take him out. He was going to fight him. And the mother was trying to counsel him how to, to be a follower of Jesus and deal with it that way. And she said to him, Did you pray to the Lord for understanding and help to avoid a fight? And Ben didn't answer. So she repeated it Did you pray to God and ask Him to help you not fight? And the little boy blurted out, No, I don't want to pray. I'd rather beat Him up. See, six-year-olds don't have the filters that you and I have, (laughs) but how often have we thought something like that? No, I don't want to pray. I want to hold on to my grudge. I want to get revenge, and Jesus says, if we're going to pray, forgive me, we have to forgive others. The third request for ourselves is also a hard one in some ways. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're to pray for spiritual protection in a dangerous world. Protection from trials and temptations. But, and lead us not? Does, does God really lead us into temptation? James 1 says God does not tempt us with evil. So does he lead us? into temptation some people try to get around it by saying well this word can also mean trials and it can and it may be legitimate to pray that as well don't lead us into trials though we know trials produce patience and patience produces endurance in matthew just two chapters earlier matthew 4 we read that the spirit of god led jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by satan in luke 22 jesus says to peter peter satan has desired to have you to sift you and i've prayed for you that your faith won't fail so i think what we need to do is take this phrase and say what we are praying is god don't allow temptation or trials to come into my life that will cause me to fall away Don't lead me into something that is too hard. You are sovereign over it. I know that. And I am dependent on you because I know I can't face trials and temptations alone. The lead us not is really just a statement of dependence, of how much we need Him. The parallel idea is deliver us from evil or probably the evil one. Drag us from His clutches. This is a prayer that recognizes that we do not have in ourselves the strength to defeat temptation and sin. Probably a really good piece of this prayer to pray in some manner every morning. Lord, I know I am going to face trials and maybe temptations today. Please do not allow me to fall. Deliver me from the clutches of the evil one. And then some of you have these words For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you have an ESV like I do, you don't have those words. And that seems a little strange, doesn't it? Because many of us have heard this prayer with that ending forever, seems like. I think that's what happened in the first century, too. As scribes were copying Matthew's gospel, they said, Surely, Jesus had an ending here. Somebody must have left it out. And maybe with very good intentions, they pulled some words from 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. I don't want to spend a lot of time digging into the depths of the science of textual criticism with you this morning. But I do want you to think just for a moment. Our earliest manuscripts of Matthew's Gospel do not have that ending. The earliest commentaries written by early church fathers in the first century, talking about the Lord's Prayer, don't talk about the ending. But very, very early in the first century, really toward the end of the first century, it appears. So what do we do with that? The the beauty of textual criticism is that scholars who know a whole lot more than me take the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament and they, they look at them and they see where there are any differences and, and then they weigh it against the multitude of later manuscripts and they, they try to discern what the original text said. And I want you to understand, not just here, but with the, all of the New Testament, there are some variations, but none of them are significant and critical to our faith and our belief. And we can be assured that those who work on it have given us translations that are reliable and accurate, that are the Word of God. And ultimately, if this ending is in there, or if it isn't, it doesn't really change anything. Because is it true? Is God the kingdom? Does the kingdom belong to Him? Does the power belong to Him? Does the glory belong to Him forever? Yes, it certainly does. It's very true. And in fact, it, it doesn't change the Lord's Prayer because that same theme is how he opened the prayer that God is sovereign over all. And he calls all to bow the knee before him. So don't allow, hey, what happened to the rest of verse 13 to distract you from what Jesus teaches us about God dependent prayer. That's not focused on what we want, but on God's priorities his priority that people would recognize that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and bow the knee to him and the priority that god places on your needs and my needs in his divine plan so the question is does our prayer life reflect god's priorities or is our prayer life all about us Do we have unsaved people on our prayer list that we're praying will bow the knee? Are we praying for those who know Christ to grow spiritually, that the the kingdom of God would grow in their influence in their lives? Are we praying for our missionaries who are out on the front lines of helping God's kingdom to impact lives? If I looked at your prayer list today, does it mirror God's priorities? And we try to do that as we produce the prayer prompter to have things that are about the bigger vision of God's kingdom work and about the critical needs of our church and our people. God-dependent prayer is not grounded in who we are but who God is. And it is not focused on what we want but on God's priorities. And so if you know Christ as Savior, I encourage you to pray. Pray. That's how you grow in prayer. You exercise it. You work that muscle. You pray. You come before God. And this morning, if you do not know this God, this Father we've been talking about, who loves you enough that he sent his Son to die for you, I encourage you today to talk to me or to one of the other pastors or that friend who brought you. If you're watching online, I encourage you to get a hold of our office, and and we would love to sit down and talk to you and pray with you. Warren Wearsby tells the story of Lyndon Johnson and his press secretary, Bill Moyers. One day at the staff lunch, Johnson called on Bill Moyers to give the uh, prayer of thanks for the food. And if you know anything about Lyndon Johnson, you know that he was not particularly a polite man. So as Bill Moyers began to pray, in the middle of his prayer, Johnson yelled, Speak up, Bill, I can't hear you. And Moyers paused for a moment and he said, Mr. President, I wasn't talking to you. God-dependent prayer is us talking to God. Our communication with God, open and real and focused on Him and His priorities. Let's pray. Thank you, that we can call you Father. Thank you that we can bring our needs before you, even our desires. But Lord, help us to keep the big picture in mind. Help us to not forget that the greatest need of our world is for you to rule and reign in lives and then to come and rule and reign on this earth. And so we do pray that your kingdom would come in the lives of people that we know, that we love. And we pray that your will would be done on this earth. We look forward in hope to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.